Welcome to the Simple Questions Podcast. This is your host, Dylan Carnahan. You're in for a treat on this episode. It's a little bit different than normal. We're going to be going over some of the greatest moments we've had on the podcast over the last 13 episodes, starting from episode 14, going all the way to our last episode, episode 26. That spans an entire year, which means that you'll hear from many different guests, such as a former hostage negotiator, a chief medical examiner, a meteorologist, and on and on and on. There's a lot of different topics we've touched over these last 13 episodes, as well as you'll hear from all the artists and bands that have been featured over the course of that time, which has also spanned a wide variety of genres too. Let's waste no time and start off with episode 14, How Does Inflation Work? This episode featured a discussion with Malcolm Gold, a professor of economics at Avila University. You're listening to Nicole Springer, who was featured on that episode. Specifically, this is her song, Good Time. Let's listen to what Malcolm has to say about what is inflation. Where you came from, the storms you What is inflation? Uh, inflation is a huge macroeconomic term, and inflation is generally the overall change of that average price level. There tends to kind of be a negative connotation with that. Is is inflation a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it's both. And part of it, and you're going to hear this a lot from me because economists usually say it depends on the situation. Uh, okay. Yeah, a little bit of inflation is probably good compared to no inflation or negative inflation, or what should we call deflation. Um, so if prices drop, it's a really bad situation. So we actually want, from the economic perspective, for the macro economy to make things work better, we want prices to increase just a little bit. What we don't want is for prices to rise so much that it causes some of these massive concerns. And what we're experiencing today is kind of a little bit of an intermediate where prices are going up more than what they've happened in the past. And it's causing this angst and this concern because when I say inflation is the average price level, it doesn't necessarily indicate that all prices go up at the same rate. Episode 15. How do you plan a diet? As sports dietitian, nutritionist, and wellness consultant, Amy Dirks describe how to change your style of eating. Specifically, we're going to focus on a soundbite here where she's giving some helpful tips on eating right. You're listening to Drowning in This House by Till Willis. Be sure to check him out. He's got some great stuff. Let's bend the ear to what Amy has to say. For someone say that they're at 40, 60, you know, 40 on the healthy end, right? You know, what what would you say to that person to kind of get them to change um, their style of eating or if they wanted to more adhere to a healthier style mm-hmm. of eating? Um, I like to start with what people drink because I think a lot of times they're sabotaging their health or diet by what they're drinking. And Um, you know, again, access to all the sugary Starbucks drinks and sodas and energy drinks and um, people don't drink water 
And, and so that's where I start. It's like as simple as just let's replace that diet soda with some water. And maybe you add, you know, some lemon or mint or something to spruce it up. But um, it, it truly can be as, as simple as that. And that's where I start because um, again, the whole sugar thing, you know, sugar is what makes you fat, not, not fat. So we need about, I think it's like six teaspoons um, of added sugar. Is it six teaspoons? I could be saying this wrong right now because I've kind of lost the, um, the numbers, but basically women um, should only have like a very small amount of added sugar a day and men can have a little bit more. Um, but when you look at like a Starbucks drink, it has like three times the amount of sugar than what you should be having in a day. And that doesn't even count like what you're eating in addition to mm -hmm. that, that drink, you know? So I feel like, um, sodas and coffee drinks and things like that really do contribute to a lot of people's, you know, weight gain, so to speak. Oh, and diet soda. I wanted to touch on that really quick. Cause I think people think, oh, well it's calorie free. So it's not going to, you know, add any weight. Um, realistically that artificial sweetener in it, tells the brain that you're having sugar anyway. And so guess what? Insulin is still released. And so your body goes through the same hormonal cascade that it would if you were having the real sugar itself. And so you're going to end up storing fat anyway. So people that are drinking diet sodas all the time, thinking that they're doing themselves a, a health favor are not. You, you're better off just having the real thing. Episode 16, How Do You Use Cryptocurrency, has Vice President of the KU Blockchain Institute, Tony Cheka, explain the technology behind cryptocurrency. You're listening to Love Song by Frog Pond, a band that began in 1993 that had major record label deals and had performed for acts like the Goo Goo Dolls that took a 20-year hiatus and came back to drop a new LP called Time Thief. So definitely check out that album let's listen to what tony has to say about blockchain technology can you explain a little bit about how blockchain works yeah so blockchain is the underlying technology that makes cryptocurrency and all cryptocurrency is on the blockchain but blockchain actually has some other cool uses which are not related to finance and cryptocurrency but basically blockchain is a decentralized ledger it keeps basically keeps a list of transactions right it um it's created by a large collection of nodes which in this case is like computers running certain software and they're all basically validating transactions on this same ledger which in turn is used to prove that you can own a digital thing. And that's like really the hardest thing to wrap your mind around. But once you can wrap your mind around like that, the whole point of blockchain is to own something that is digital and prove where it has been. That is really where you can see uh, why blockchain technology is useful. And it kind of does this by starting out. I like to think of it like building blocks, right? Like if you have a one building okay. block of data and then you connect it to another building block of data. So if I had, you know, uh, just a ball and I wanted to pass you the ball, okay. you would own the ball. The ball starts with me and then I would give it to you. And blockchain, what that does is it connects those. 
it records that transaction forever. You can always go back and look at all the transactions that happen on the blockchain. And then if you wanted to give that ball to someone else, it would record that transaction as well. And theoretically, this keeps going and you can eventually trace it all the way back to me, the origin of the ball. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty easy to get very technical, but I, I think that's a good generalized s- simple way. Yeah, that helps me kind of visualize it. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great analogy. So you're kind of saying that this ledger is able to, you know, for traceability, so to speak, um, and also, I, you know, it helps with authenticity, right? That's right, because at the end of the day, um, digital items, you know, copying and pasting, you can copy and paste anything, right? So like text-wise, pictures-wise. So the whole thing is, how do you prove that someone owns something? Mm-hmm. And that's why it's pretty cool um, with the introduction of NFTs, which are non-fungible tokens. Those are another use case of blockchain technology that can prove and uh, really reduce the ability to counterfeit uh, digital art. Episode 17, How Do You Play Video Games Professionally? Has KC Pioneer's street team member and former University of Missouri esports player Noah De Aces, also known as KCP Blanks, discuss how to compete in esports. You're listening to How Could I Lie by Daryl Chisholm. Daryl is a good friend of the show, and quite frankly, this is just an absolute banger. So you just gotta listen to it and make sure you check out all the remainder of his music that he's put out as well. Let's listen to Noah explain the difference between a casual gamer and an esports player. I guess what separates a casual gamer or someone that just occasionally plays competitively versus, say, an esports player? I think it's just the amount of time dedicated, honestly. That and casual gamers, most of the time, if you're playing, it's for fun. The biggest difference between the two is if you're competing in this and you're trying to make genuine money from it you're also going to be playing when you don't want to play you know like if you play the game seven hours a day there's definitely going to be a few of those hours where you do not want to be on the game and it does get mentally draining at times you're saying the one differentiating factor is really time and intent so i guess what what does that look like for an esports player the the way that you practice as an esports player is um usually there's scrimmages just like any other sport set aside where you would spend two or maybe three hours scrimming with your team against other teams um just trying to form chemistry and then all of the other time is going to be spent either going over vod review with your team going over film pretty much and then that usually takes maybe an hour a day and then all of the rest of that would just be individual practice, going into ranked on your own and improving yourself as an individual. Episode 18, how are weather forecasts made? Has former KSHB 41 chief meteorologist and Weather 2020 founder Gary Lezak explained how we predict the weather. You're listening to Boysenberry by Jeff Shirley. Really smooth, great song. Happened to catch Jeff at the Green Lady Lounge and reached out to him and decided to get him on the podcast. Let's hear how far out 
Gary can forecast the weather using the Lezak recurring cycle. How many, you know, how many days and hours can you forecast in advance? I know you talked about, you know, the LRC out 100 days. Um, what are, you know, a typical weather forecast model? Um, what's that look like? For other forecasters that are not using the LRC, the limit is 10 to 15 days. And the accuracy at 10 to 15 days is sacrificed. Uh, the, the going statement from the National Hurricane Center, they'll tell you that you can't predict a hurricane more than 10 days in advance. And yet, using the LRC, we predicted Hurricane Michael, Harvey, um, Tropical Storm Gordon, and last year, Ida, and we reverse engineered Katrina from way back in 2005. You can predict these things 100, 200 days in advance using the LRC. So, so if you have the technology I'm bringing to the market and to the world, the, the accuracy at 100 days out and in January at 200 days out um, is as accurate as that 7 to 10 day forecast that most people think is a limit. That's the technology I'm bringing. So yeah, uh, one example, one more example. The Chiefs are playing the Indianapolis Colts in a playoff game. And you know, a foot of snow fell that day, about 10 inches at the stadium. It was uh, it was crazy out of tailgating. It, oh, it just was glorious for the game, thank goodness. But two weeks before that storm, we had had a blizzard 47 days before that storm, okay? And it was a 47 to 48 day cycle that year. And so when we had the blizzard in November, and then we found out the Chiefs are getting the bye and they're going to be hosting the first game of the playoffs. We knew, I knew, and so I'm on the air. Hey, that is the blizzard part of the pattern cycling back through. Just know. And the forecast by the model said sunny and 50. Seven days out, the models are still saying sunny and 50. But I know the models are wrong. So I'm saying, hey, on the air, the blizzard part of the pattern is cycling through and watch out. Five days before, four days before, finally, the National Weather Service chance of rain or snow. Three days before snow, two days before snow likely, and our forecast from weeks out ended up verifying and a foot of snow fell that day. So there is a predictability far in advance using the LRC. Episode 19, how is the cause of death determined? Has Chief Medical Examiner Dr. Diane Peterson detailed the process for finding a cause of death? You're listening to Dresser Drawers by Tracer Heights. The song has really cool banjo in it, um, and that's really the same with a lot of their music. Therefore, you should definitely check them out. Let's go ahead and listen to... Dr. Diane Peterson completely debunk <laughs> the whole myth that is time of death. Indicators that you're, or things that you're trying to clarify, you know, cause of death being a large one. I would say also probably like time of death being of importance. Um, time of death is something that we get asked about, and it's certainly something on TV that everybody on TV knows the exact time of death. But in reality, unless the death is witnessed, we don't know the exact time of death. Um, and there's no way 
to know the exact time of death scientifically if it's not witnessed, um, despite what TV tells you. Um, I, I cannot look at an individual who was found and say, oh, well, they died at 11.05 p.m. yesterday. That's just not possible. The decompositional changes in individuals is, has a range, it has a standard deviation, it's not the same, and it, it is not down to the minute. I might be able to get down to hours, sometimes days, but not the minute. Episode 20, How Do You Tell a Good Story, has author and 57-time Moth Story Slam champion, Matthew Dix, explain ways you can improve your storytelling. Featured on this episode is Say by Say It Again. It has a nice, airy, uplifting vibe to it, which is very similar to their other music they have out. You're going to hear Matt explain the best storytelling tip there is out here. Give it a listen. But how do we deliver a story? How do we tell one? Um, the first thing you have to do is decide where your story is going to begin and end. I guess that's probably the most important thing. Uh, most stories don't actually end in the real world. It's usually like a phone call, an interruption, a text message, the, the ride ends, the meal's over. Most people don't actually plan where their story is going to end. You know, the difference essentially between a storyteller like me and most storytellers in the world is that I think before I speak. And mostly what I do is I say, what do I actually want to say? So when I say, oh, that happened to me once and I'm going to tell a story, I know where I'm landing. So we always have to start at the end because a story is about a moment of realization or transformation. And that always comes at the end, just like in a movie, right? Characters fall in love at the end of movies, right? That's when they realize, oh, they should have been in love, right? Um, you know, some character realizes, oh, I must sacrifice myself, right? Tony Stark sacrifices himself for the good of all at the end of Endgame, you know, not halfway through it. So characters have these moments of realization at the ends of movies. We have moments of realization at the ends of our stories. So we have to start at the end by saying, oh, I'm trying to tell them this. I'm trying to say that, you know, I suddenly recognized that, um, I'm trying to think of a story. Like I I'm suddenly realizing that my wife knows I was hungry as a child, even though I never told her. Wow, she knows me better than I have ever been known before, right? That's what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. That's the end of my story. The end of the story is my wife says, I know you were hungry when you were a kid, even though you've never told me, I know it. I've listened, I figured things out. So if I know that's the end of my story, right? The beginning of my story should always be the opposite of the end. Therefore, that's why there's change, right? So if at the end of the story, my wife knows something about me, at the beginning of the story, she must not know it. And that is me as a child keeping the secret of hunger, which is what most hungry children do. They don't tell people that they're hungry because hunger is shame. And so as a kid, I'm hungry, but never telling anyone because it's better to be hungry with dignity than asking for food with shame, right? So I start by talking about those secrets and then I end up at a dining room table with a wife who tells me she's uncovered my secret. That's essentially the story. All movies work this way. If you watch the first 15 minutes of any movie, you should be able to accurately predict what the ending is going to be. You won't know the circumstances, but you'll be like, this guy is flawed in this way. At the end of the movie, he will not be flawed in this way anymore. And every movie just about 
works this way, which is why I can watch 15 minutes of a movie, pause the movie, and then ruin it for everyone by saying, <laughs> oh, this is what's going to happen. I don't know how it's going to happen exactly, but you know, most of us are like this anyway. When you watch a movie like When Harry Met Sally, at the beginning of the movie, they actually say they hate each other. We all know they're going to end up at the end of the movie together, right? Many of these movies are not mysteries to us. We understand where we're going. It's just a joy to get there. Episode 21, What is Lucid Dreaming? Has co-author of A Field Guide to Lucid Dreaming, Jared Chang Zizel, describe what lucid dreaming is. You're listening to Halo by Black Light Animals. This song just absolutely encapsulates the entire like theme and energy of this episode, so it's just an absolute perfect match. This is an interesting topic. Um, without jumping around too much, I thought it would be best to just focus on Jared's initial description of lucid dreaming. Lucid dream different than, say, a normal dream where I remember flying. So a lucid dream is primarily just about awareness. Um, so we say like the, you know, the definition of a lucid dream is a dream in which you are aware of the dream itself. Um, so the same awareness that you and, I, you and I have in this moment, like I know that I'm looking at a computer screen with, with your face, we got the headphones, like, you know, I'm pretty aware of everything that's going on right now. Um, and a lucid dream is just having that same awareness in the dream world. So it's like, you're not on this sort of, you know, this, this track of like, just sort of absorbing and experiencing stuff. You're also aware of the experiences as they're happening. You say like, and you can identify um, that this is a dream, sort of like when you, you know, in your example, when you're washing your hair and, you know, your, your hands go through your forehead, like you're like, oh, this isn't real. This is a dream. Like that is uh, sort of the moment of lucidity, which, you know, we talk about in the book of like, really, you know, and, and in all honesty, like all the techniques, all the, the things that you can do to increase the chances of having a lucid dream are really just about that one moment where you're like, okay, this is a dream. Because there's this inherent paradox to lucid dreaming where you're trying to find your own awareness while you're unaware of it. And so it's like you need that trigger or um, there's also, you know, examples of lucid dreams called wild where you actually never let go of that awareness. And like as you're going into, you know, from waking into the dream world, um, your awareness of the fact that you're, you know, kind of leaving the waking world going into the dream world never you know, never leaves your mind. Um, but a lot of lucid dreams, and I'd say the majority of them happen where you're actually unaware, something happens in the dream world, it triggers, you know, basically you'd ask this question, am I dreaming? And, you know, and then you um, you basically say, wait a second, like, yes, I'm dreaming. Um, and that the moment you're like, yes, I'm dreaming, you've had a lucid dream. You don't have to worry about controlling the dream, flying, like, you know, you might just say, yes, I'm in a lucid dream. And then often what happens is, you know, it's such an intense experience, you wake right up. But even if it happened, even if you spent like two seconds there, that's still, you still had a lucid dream. Yeah. 
Episode 22, What are the Benefits of Cultivated Meat? Has bioprocessing senior scientist and founder of Allied Scholars for Animal Protection, Dr. Faras Harsini, describe how lab-grown meat can change the future. You're listening to Blue by Fresh of Breath Air. Honestly, Fresh of Breath Air is one of the better alternative rock bands in the Kansas City area, so you should definitely check them out. Dr. Harsini has a lot of interesting things to say. Um, Man, there are so many things quotable from this. However, I think the most applicable to what the actual episode is, is his explanation of the process of actually cultivating meat. Let's give it a listen. And one of the means that you're doing that is through cultivated meat. Now that's an excellent two words there, but what what is cultivated meat? <laughs> yeah, I guess the uh, term can be a little confusing for people who hear it for the first time, but hopefully people have heard it already. Um, and I have to say cultivated meat is also known as lab-grown meat, uh, but it's basically real meat. Um, it's produced using advanced cell culture techniques. Cultivated meat is the sustainable cruelty-free replacement of conventional meat, which is unsustainable, uh, just like petroleum, and causes an enormous amount of suffering uh, on both humans and non-human animals. So for cultivated meat, we basically grow muscles and tissue cells directly. It's fast, sustainable, and just more ethical. And then once we obtain the sample, we generate a cell bank. So it's basically a giant freezer with a lot of cells in it. (laughs) Um, So there will be no need to go back to the original animal and bother them ever again. So every time you want a batch of steak, you basically go to your freezer, AKA the cell bank, grab a vial and start a culture from it as easy as that. And the technique is really not something new. We've been doing cell culture for many, many years in medical fields and in pharmaceuticals. Um, Now we are just adapting the same technology for, you know, to fix our food system. Um, So, yeah, and just I want to add that we don't call it lab-grown meat because um, what where do you think the food comes from when you call it lab-grown? The lab. Lab, right? But just, you know, cultivated meat, just like any other food that you consume is coming from factories. Um, so it's not, it's no longer produced in a lab and it's coming from um, a factory. So you can think about it as a meat brewery, basically. Now, okay, so we we got our sample, if you will, right? We got our cell bank. Now, how do we actually cultivate said meat? What is the process for that? Um, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, Meat cultivating basically mimics the biological processes of cell growth that naturally happens inside an animal, except in this case, it's happening in a reactor or uh, incubator. So first, we obtain a small muscle sample from a live animal. Uh, Think about it as like a tiny biopsy. Uh, Then we extract some cells from the sample and culture them in a medium that is rich in, in nutrients. So it basically works like like blood that provides nutrients and oxygen and everything. So same thing here. 
Um, this way, cells can grow exponentially in an environment that is controlled and completely contaminant-free. And then we grow them in large incubators. We call them bioreactors, but really, um, you know, don't let the word scare you. Uh, beer is also made in bioreactors, except that we just call them fermenters, right? So yeah, you just have a big fermenter, a big um, incubator, however you want to think about it. And we grow a lot of cells, uh, muscle cells or fat cells or whatever. Um, and then we harvest, we collect these cells and we put them in a the form of the meat that we want to produce. Episode 23, How Do Ants Live? Has Stanford PhD student Mila Pamplona take you on a journey into the fascinating world of ants. You're listening to Feeling Low by Times and Places. This comes off of a really interesting album that has some great artwork that accompanies it. You're going to hear Mila talk about some of the actual numbers surrounding ants, which is incredibly insightful. So I want to get some numbers to kind of contextualize this. So, and you had mentioned specifically, you know, what is the life expectancy of a colony? Yeah. Uh, it also, again, it depends on the species. Uh, I think a nice example are the leafcutter ants because they can leave like 25 years old because that's the age of the ant queen. Okay. Like I have worked with colonies that in uh, that in, the, in nature and when they go to the lab, they live less. But I have worked with colonies that were like 12, 15 years old. And this is like pretty old. Like, wow. And uh, but yeah, this is usually the lifetime of the colony and it's related to the lifetime of the queen. But workers kind of live like one year. So they live much less than the queen. And this is again like one of the big questions why do they live so much less is because like they're being eaten i mean they can be predated and then they don't necessarily live a year you know naturally they live in a year so, really yeah it's not just like uh it's a dangerous job out there and we're seeing a yeah. high mortality rate like we have a capped life expectancy at 12 months biology yeah yeah so Okay, so we're we're kind of getting some life expectancy, you know, the of both the colony itself and some of the individual ants within that colony. How many ants are in the colony? It also depends a lot on the species. Like a lot of the works are made with uh, colonies that have small sizes. So you can have a colony that has like 200 ants and in some species others that have a few thousand ants. Uh, leafcutter ants, they have really big nests. Like in nature, they can reach 8 million ants in one colony. Wow. So wow. they're huge. And uh, in the lab, usually like you can have, uh, in my previous lab, we had a leafcutter ant colony that had, at some point, that was Shakira. <laughs> she had uh, uh, 150,000 individuals wow. that was the colony that i used for my master but i didn't use like the whole colony so in my master i used like fifteen thousand ants something like this 
that's why I, I had to work on machine learning to identify and count ants because they were a lot. It's impossible to count them when you're just have the human eye. You need some help of technology and computers to do so. In sanctuary town. Episode 24, How Do You Negotiate? As former hostage negotiator and the Black Swan Group instructor, Sandy Hine teach you powerful negotiation techniques. You're listening to Boots on the Ground by Chris Hudson. Chris has a very, very good voice, and that really shines through in this song. You're going to hear Sandy and I kind of talk about various different negotiating techniques here, but you're going to glean some very important information from it. Let's listen to it. You got labeling, right? Labeling emotions. You have mirroring, so repetition of three to five keywords that the other person says. Yep. What are some other effective techniques that you can use when negotiating or frankly, communicating with people? Yeah, um, dynamic silence. Because the problem I see with a lot of people when they first start using our skills is they just start slamming the skills out there one after another. Here's a mirror, here's a label, another mirror, another label, and the other side's getting like put through the ringer because they're trying to keep up with you, right? When you use one of our skills, you should always pause for a few seconds afterwards before you do anything else because you have to let their brain kind of catch on to what you've said and then process it before they can give you a response. So, and believe it or not, dynamic silence should be the easiest skill in our skill set. And it's actually the hardest for most people because you have it in your head. You just want to keep putting it out there. You want to keep going. And so you have to make this conscious effort to, to put this pause in the conversation. And it's really hard, but it's important. Um, use the nice, oh, yeah, actually, you've used a lot of skills since we got on here. You've been doing some labels and a couple calibrated questions. Pretty good use of the skills there. Um, so one of, one of the things that's easiest for people to learn usually right off the bat is to stop asking questions that you're pushing for a yes. If you're trying to get a yes answer out of someone, flip the words around just a little bit so that they can say no instead of yes, but it means yes for you. Because pushing people for a yes makes them feel trapped, makes them feel like they're making a commitment, makes them feel like they're, they're not sure what to say because are you tricking them? Are you putting something on them? Or are you pushing them so hard? It just gives a bad feeling. So instead, allow them to say no, but it means yes for you because, I mean, let's face it, one of the first words people you learn to say when their baby is no, right? I mean, anybody that's had anybody close to two years old, all they know is no, 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 no. Doesn't matter what it is. No, it's no. So everyone likes to say no. They're protected. They feel safe. It saves their autonomy. So, I, and one of the biggest, this is one of the biggest examples we give people because it's the one that makes the most sense. When you call up somebody and you say, do you have a few minutes to talk? And the person, first of all, freezes because they go, ah. And then they, yeah. all this stuff goes through their mind in like 0.2 seconds. Mm. do I have a few minutes to talk? If I do, I don't want to talk to you. If I want to talk to you, I don't want to talk about what you want to talk about. All that goes through their head to the point that they're already frustrated now and all you did was say one thing. Episode 25, What is Aphantasia? Has the co-founder of the Aphantasia Network Tom Eber explained how people are unable to form mental images. 
You're listening to Face the Beast by The Whatnots. This is a really interesting instrumental track that much like uh, the Lucid Dreaming episode, I just felt like this really matched the energy and topic at hand. You're going to hear Tom flat out tell you what aphantasia is and we're going to start off with the pronunciation because although you're hearing me right now when you see the word you may want to say something different there are people that are going to be reading the title of this podcast there are people that are going to be hearing us talk tom and they're going to go how do you say that (laughs) so for the record it's, uh, it's probably somewhere between aphantasia and aphantasia. It's more like a tomato-tomato in terms of the pronunciation on that. But really, it comes from the root word, fantasia, is the word that Aristotle used to describe the power of imagination, the ability to conjure up things that aren't present to your senses, to conjure them up in your mind. That's fantasia. And so aphantasia denotes an absence of that ability. And so that's actually, so aphantasia would be the technically correct way uh, that most people will say it. Right from the horse's mouth, folks. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying that. I know there are many people that are going to go, and it's a little bit difficult to begin a conversation if the topic is a little... Exactly. So we're going to get to, you know, you gave us a brief little overview. You cracked... Crack the door open for us, Tom, here. I'm going to hit you with the the crazy question, which is, what is aphantasia? Well, similar to the story you kind of just opened up with there, aphantasia is the inability to experience mental images in you know a wakeful state. So if I ask you to think of a horse, most people are going to conjure some type of image of a horse in their mind's eye. Uh, that horse could be brown or black, standing in a field or on a racetrack. That will largely be based on their personal experience. If you grew up with horses, you know, you're going to see that you know, horse uh, in your mind's eye. For people with aphantasia, they don't see the image of the horse. They only have the thought or the concept. We're talking about horses. I can tell you lots of characteristics about horses. I can tell you that you know, it's a mammal with four legs and has these sorts of characteristics. There's no visual representation of that object in my mind's eye. So instead of thinking in pictures, like most people, it's more about thinking in language, thinking in concepts. Uh, And it's actually not just limited to the visual sense. Visual is the most popular because it's the easiest to understand, but it can extend to all of the mental senses. So if I ask you to think of your favorite song, Uh, Some people can actually hear the sound of the instrument in their mind. They actually hear the quality of the sound. I could maybe hum to the rhythm of the music, but I don't actually hear the sound. And so, uh, yeah, it extends to everything from taste and touch and uh, all the mental senses. Lastly, Episode 26, How Do You Care for Houseplants? Has houseplant expert Jane Perrone recommend ways you can keep your plants healthy? You're listening to Requiem for the Dirt Man by Jason Beers. Jason has a lot of music out, 
and I don't know how to describe it other than just flat out original. You're going to have to listen to it for yourself. Um, and I would highly encourage you to do that. This is the first guest that we've had on that is outside the United States, which is really awesome. So Jane's located in an area just out of London. So this specifically, I'm just calling out. She gives her, her best advice here. And it's just something very simple and something that a lot of people take for granted. So let's hear what Jane has to say. What's the best piece of advice you would give to someone new to indoor plants? Oh my gosh. Uh, that's a really good one. You only get one, Jane. Don't. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm going to make I it mean, count. Other than like, listen to my podcast, which is obviously that's goes without saying, I would say, you know, use your powers of observation. Like we have evolved to look at plants and understand plants, but in the modern era, we have become rather, um, blinkered to plants and we don't look at them you know if you show somebody a picture which has got loads of plants in it mm -hmm. plus some animals that you'll say what's in the picture and they'll tell you what the animals are in the picture and they will not mention the plants so we need to retune in to plants and you can do that with the plants in your home as well by really starting to look and i mean really look at them and observe them and that way you'll know you'll be like well what is that white grainy stuff on the backs of the leaves? Because that wasn't there last week. What mm -hmm. is that? And what do I need to do about it? You know, um, so really tuning into your plants will massively help to understand them and begin your journey of getting to know your plants. And there's just, you just can't beat the excitement of a new leaf unfurling or a flower bud coming. You just feel like, a hundred feet tall when that first happens because it you know you did that you mm -hmm. you gave that plant the nurturing conditions it needed to thrive so yeah really start to look at your plants and um, that way lies success you made it you listened to episode 14 all the way to episode 26 it's time to just take a breath and thank all of the guests and the artists that have contributed to the podcast thus far. If you heard a topic or guest that interested you, then please go back to that podcast episode and listen to it in depth. Go to that guest's social media, learn more there, go to their website, whatever it may be, just go check them out if that interests you. The same thing for all of the artists. If you heard a genre of music or a new band that you've never heard before, go check them out. Speaking of musicians, I do want to give a shout out to Lee Sampson, who has an upcoming album, Philophobia. Lee actually was on the first ever podcast episode we have, What Makes a Good Beer, and he had his song Jump featured, and now he's coming out with a new album, The Jacobins. They have a new record called Both Sides of the Horizon. It's almost done. They're mastering it right now. And that's going to be out soon, too. So go go back even to those episodes that aren't in this compilation and see what's out there from the guests and the musicians. Let that curiosity fuel you to gain exposure to new topics and music. That segues us to some of those famous last words, which are subscribe to the Simple Questions podcast to get notified when our latest episodes are released. 
And thank you for listening. And remember to keep asking questions. Bye.